Welcome to the City on a Hill Church Forest Hills podcast. We exist to see our neighbors from every culture follow Jesus as King. We're glad you're here and thanks for listening. More information about the life and mission of City on a Hill can be found at coahforesthills.org. Again, we're so glad that you're joining us today for worship. Uh, thank you again for joining us. Fill out that Connect card either by scanning the QR code or again, visiting coahforesthills.org slash connect. Our values as a church are the gospel community and mission. The gospel is the good news that God wanted a relationship with us and he gave his very own son to pay for our sins so that we could enter into God's family. And so you can receive that simply by trusting Jesus. And we would love to talk with you about that if you've not made that step of faith. Secondly, community, uh, God uh, brought us into a family, into a church. And so we get to love others as Christ has loved us. And then mission, the good news is just too good to keep to ourselves. So we tell others about what Jesus has done and live lives impacted by that good news. A few announcements for us today. Uh, One announcement is our Evidences for Christ class, which is coming up on uh, next Sunday. Uh, February 7th. Uh, and we're going for eight weeks. And this is good for you if you've never, um, uh, if you're still just trying to figure out Christianity and you're exploring, uh, or if you're uh, wanting to enter into some apologetic conversations with friends, uh, learning how to, and growing how to, and de- defending your faith, this is the class for you. You can go to coahforesthills.org slash events to our event page and sign up there. Secondly, uh, we have our membership process, which is starting. Um, uh, membership is important to us. It's covenanting together saying, that this is our church, this is our mission, these are our people. And so there's a couple of pathways you can take to be a part of that. If you're already uh, a member at City on the Hill Brookline and you've been a part of our launch team, um, we'll do an interview with you. But if you're new to us um, or you haven't yet taken that step with our our sending church, um, you can go through our membership class, which is going to be on February 20th from 8 o'clock to 10 o'clock on Zoom. Again, go to our events page. You can sign up there. This morning, we're going to be wrapping up our series on our vision called From Here to There. We, over the last few weeks, we've been looking at how we are going to get from where we are today to, to the lofty vision that God has given us uh, of seeing every person from every culture experience the gospel. And so we're looking towards that. And, and because it's such a lofty vision, we have to have some, some markers along the way to help us know that we're heading in the right direction. Um, and so we looked at the first week at the idea of maturity. We want to grow as followers of Jesus, both personally and also as a church. We, we looked at what it means to be multicultural in our second week, the idea that we're pursuing multicultural relationships, um, wanting to um, uh, equip multicultural leadership to help form a new people. Uh, Last week, we looked at the idea of multiplication, the great commission, that the good news is something we tell to others that they may place their faith in Jesus. And then today, we're gonna close out by looking at the idea of mercy and justice, what it means to live out our faith in loving and caring for others. And so in our vision statement, we've had a question before, why the phrase experiencing the gospel? Seems like an interesting idea around Jesus. And so the gospel is... is it is about our relationship with God. So there's a vertical reconciliation that happens that, that Jesus forgives our sins. And that is absolutely true, but it's not just that. It's not less than that. Justification is the core and the center of Christianity that we've been made right with God. But also there's a horizontal reconciliation that happens as well, that God changes how we relate to ourselves, how we relate to other people and how we relate to the world at large. And he does so by bringing us into a kingdom. He brings us into this new kingdom, into this new family, and that we're to live in a way that changes the world that we live in. 
This is why in Mark chapter one, verse 15, Jesus said, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Repent and believe in the gospel. So this idea of a kingdom, a kingdom that would change everything, that everything would fall under the rule and reign of Jesus, they're to believe in that good news. This kingdom calls a new people. It calls the church, this people who've been transformed by what Christ has done for them. And now we live out applying that good news to every single area of our lives. And it changes how we live. It changes um, how we, uh, it changes the city that we live live in and ultimately it changes our world. And we began to unpack this idea last week that um, we declare the gospel. We, 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 the Great Commission, Jesus sends us and, and tells us, that he sends us with his power and with his presence to baptize people and, and bring, so they can be a part of this family and then also teaching them to do the same. So we declare the gospel, but we, but we also demonstrate the gospel that we express the love that we have for God in loving other people. Not only do we love others in affection and our feelings, but we also do so by seeking their good, by living for their flourishing, that they can experience the the creation and and all that God created them to be. And so from the very beginning of the biblical story, we see God setting his people aside uh, to fill the world with his glory so that all creation would experience the good news. This has often been called the creation mandate, that these people would bless all people. And so we are called as redeemed followers of Jesus, people who've been called out of darkness into light to go back into the world so that others can be changed by this good news. And so what does this look like when it comes to the most vulnerable, to the oppressed? What does it look like when we talk about inequity? This is the idea of mercy and justice. The idea of mercy and justice. I saw a Facebook challenge around Thanksgiving and 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 on on the meme it said, ruin Thanksgiving in four words. Um, and, And somebody put raisins and potato salad, which that would absolutely ruin Thanksgiving. Somebody else said, um, you should vote for, and of course, you know, that any political conversation shuts Thanksgiving down. But another that was, was really heartbreaking was, let's talk about justice. Let's talk about justice. Because the topic of justice is a charged discussion. It carries a lot of weight and it carries a lot of meaning. And even among Christians, there's disagreement about what it looks like to pursue justice. And the idea of justice, of of a biblical justice is just that. It is biblical. It is something we have to care about because it's something that Jesus cared about. It's something that God cares deeply about. And here in Matthew 25, Jesus actually links it to being a follower of Jesus. Because it foundationally, at its very root, justice is about God because God cares about the vulnerable and the oppressed and about making everything right. So today we're going to unpack some questions. And one of these questions we're going to unpack is what is justice? Because we need to define our terms. We need to define what this term means because we need to let the Bible uh, guide us to faithfully pursue mercy and justice. So we're going to look at what is justice. Secondly, why am I personally responsible for, for it, for justice and mercy? Thirdly, what does this mean for my relationship with God? And then lastly, what is City on a Hill's vision for mercy and justice? So let's dive in and, and define what is justice. Simply, justice is to make right what is wrong. 
to make right what is wrong. And we need to define this biblically as Christians, as followers of Jesus, because the world, our culture, our society, and the Bible don't always align on a definition of justice. There are areas we certainly overlap and agree with our culture. Um, We can agree that we should care for the poor. Uh, We can agree that we should address racial inequality and racial injustice. These are things we can agree with. Sometimes um, we can agree, but maybe the means by which we pursue these, we don't agree with. And there are other times where the world's idea of justice just doesn't line up with the Bible. And particularly, we look at that with the issue of the unborn. As Christians, we value life from the womb to the tomb. And we believe that unborn children from the very moment of conception are made in the image of God. And that's something that typically our culture does not value. But as Christians, we have to value because it's a life issue. We have to define justice in biblical terms. Alistair McIntyre wrote this incredible book called After Virtue. And he talks about justice as a virtue, virtue being something that as a culture we decide is good and that we pursue because of its inherent goodness. And we do so, and a virtue is something that we consider to be good because it's grounded in an agreed-upon moral standard, something higher and something better. But part of the problem with this and us defining this in our own culture is the way that our society is constructed is we are hyper-individualistic. We're, we're, we're almost little siloed people. And so we have our own definitions oftentimes of what's true, of what's good, of what's beautiful, And so we really can't agree on a definition of goodness. And so really for us to pursue justice, we have to have an agreed upon understanding of what is good. Justice requires a standard of goodness. And so Jesus, as he's commanding his people and he's commanding us as, as his followers uh, to, to, to feed the hungry and give water to the thirsty and clothe the naked and, 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 and bring the stranger in, he's appealing to a standard of justice. He's appealing to this standard that is rooted in this robust biblical vision for human flourishing. And this is the idea of shalom. The, idea, the biblical value of shalom is often roughly translated as peace, but it's more than just the absence of conflict. It's actually this idea of flourishing, this idea of wholeness, and really that things are the way that they should be that things are brought back to a place where they ought to be. And so when we see poverty, when we see racial injustice, when we see hunger, we see the world and we see people's lives in a way that they're not meant to be, the way that they're not supposed to be. And Jesus's desire for, for shalom, for human flourishing, it emanates from who God is. It's an outworking of his character, And so when we look at the Bible, when we we see God in the scriptures, what we see is we see an incredible depth of love and care for humanity and this desire to bring fallen humanity back to this place of shalom, back to this place of flourishing, back to this place where we see the things that Jesus is talking about here in Matthew 25 eradicated. John Onachekwe says, everyone who dives deep into the character of God ends up finding a bottomless pit of compassion. See, God's desire is to see broken humanity restored, people who are made in his image. So what this means is the fact that every person is made in the image of God is that regardless of a person's utility, their ability to think, their sentience, regardless of the choices they made, regardless of their country of origin, they have inherent 
value and worth. They have inherent dignity. And so as God's people, we are sent to reflect that character in dignifying and valuing and finding people worthy simply because they're human. And so the idea of mercy and justice is stepping into places that are broken, stepping into lives that are broken and seeking to bring restoration. This is why Jesus in Matthew 5 verse 9 called followers of Jesus, his followers, people who are in the kingdom, blessed if they're peacemakers. Flourishing are the peacemakers because they will be sons of God. And in other words, blessed are the shalom bringers. Blessed are the people who step into broken places with restoration. Blessed are the people who step into what's wrong in order to make it right. This is what it means to image God to the world. So we have this idea of justice, of making things right, but this is also where the idea of mercy comes in. It's the idea of compassion. Proverbs 31, King Lemuel's mother gives him some wisdom on how he can live in a, in a way that blesses his people that he's ruling over. And he says in verses eight and nine, or she says, open your mouth for the mute, for the rights of all who are destitute. Open your mouth, judge righteously, defend the rights of the poor and the needy. Advocate for those who are vulnerable. Have compassion And so if we were to define mercy and justice biblically, I think it would be this. Compassion drives, is driven by by making right what's wrong so that every person can flourish because inherently they are made in God's image. This idea of compassion-driven justice, compassion-driven making right what's wrong is a thoroughly biblical idea. The modern conception of justice, of caring for the vulnerable and the poor is borrowed from Christianity and from Judaism. There was nothing like the Hebrew people before them. The world before them was was a a brutal place and, and unique was their treatment of the sojourner where God says in Leviticus chapter 22, he tells them that you should treat the sojourner, the foreigner with the same rules that you treat your own countrymen. That was not heard of. And the same ethic was brought into the Christian church because the Christian church practically invented adoption. As Roman citizens would take their children with disabilities and leave them on the trash heap, Christians would go out, receive those children and bring them into their own homes. So much so that Roman citizens began to drop them on the doorstep of Christian families. Christians invented the orphanages. The modern idea of a hospital of mercy medically comes from Christians applying the gospel for the flourishing of their neighbors. It's the fruit of the gospel that changes everything. So we have a biblical idea of mercy and justice, but secondly, why am I personally responsible for it? What makes me responsible? Why does Jesus require us to act in compassion towards injustice that we see? Well, because what we notice here in verses, uh, you know, in, in these verses, verse you know, 35 through really through the end of the chapter, Jesus doesn't say, you know what? You caused John to be hungry, so you need to go feed John. He doesn't say you caused Jane to be thirsty or a stranger, so you need to go give her water or bring her in. He just says you have a responsibility. We see that what happens is that we bear corporate responsibility for others. Verse 32, we see that nations are being judged 
But in verses 35 through 45, there are individuals who make up those nations. We have, we really, God judges both. And this is why the conservative idea of justice, that it's really about your individual choices and the liberal idea of justice, that it's all about social constructs, neither one of those fully tell the story. There's a complexity to the idea of injustice and the Bible deals with individuals who live within social communities. We are social creatures, so therefore we bear social responsibility. Every one of us are part of families. And so as a member of a family, I, can, I need to act in ways that benefit my family. I can't just be selfish all the time. You know, I, I can't sit home and play video games all day. I have to go to work and make, get, get a paycheck and, and feed my kids. You know, if my daughter skins her knee, I can't look at her and say, Amelie, I'm so sorry that you skinned your knee, but I didn't trip you, so I'm not going to help you. I would never say that. Like, I, I would never do that. We, have, we bear corporate responsibility in our neighborhoods. I shovel, uh, shoveled my sidewalk yesterday, not because I'm afraid of getting a ticket, but because I love my neighbor. I don't want my neighbor to fall down and break his arm. We bear responsibility as, uh, as citizens of a country, that we have laws that we follow. We, we bear responsibility as, as the church where we love one another and we serve one another and we bear one another's burdens. We're social creatures who bear social responsibility. So we can't just do what makes us happy, but our culture is training us to think about ourselves alone. Your phone trains you to be self-centered. It says, like this, look at this, get what you want, when you want it, get affirmation. We take a picture with our phone of ourselves. It's called a selfie. We are, we are being trained to think about ourselves. We live these silo lives, siloed lives, or as Alistair McIntyre says, we are a collection of strangers, each pursuing his or her own interests under minimal constraints. We see ourselves as a collection of individuals, not as a community with responsibility to each other. And so what Jesus is saying is because you're human, because you're part of the human community, when you see another human made in my image, just like you, suffering, step in and alleviate that suffering. The question of the entire Sermon on the Mount is how do we ethically treat others? And all of chapter five really deals with how do we love others ethically? But we often ask the question, why am I responsible? And this is a lot like in the uh, Gospel of Luke. An expert in the law, and that guy sure probably was fun at parties, probably a lot like a sophomore Bible college student, you know, a lot of fun. Um, he said, who is my neighbor? And, and I don't think that that gentleman was just concern because he didn't know the name of his neighbor. I think we've all had that, that day where we, we don't remember someone's name, so we're hoping somebody else will name drop it. I don't think that's what's going on. The real question behind that was, do I really have to love that person? Do I really have to love the destitute? Do I really have to love the poor? Do I really have to love my neighbor who's of a different ethnicity than me? We have responsibility to others because every person is made in his image. So there's a solidarity that we have with other people as humans. And so Jesus is saying, you're responsible not because you caused it, but because you see it. Not because you caused it, but because you can see it. That you live in a society where it's happening. And this isn't downplaying personal choices. 
but it's recognizing and acknowledging the fact that social structures often lead to and perpetuate and compound hunger and poverty, inequality, and injustice. And again, this is complex because individuals make up societies. And what often happens is that individuals, because we are sinners, build sinful societies that often build structures that hurt certain people. We see this in the example of a systemic racial injustice. John Piper gives a really good definition of what this looks like. He says that it is the cumulative effect of racist feelings, beliefs, practices, that become embodied and expressed in the policies, rules, regulations, procedures, expectations, norms, assumptions, guidelines, plans, strategies, objectives, practices, values, standards, narratives, histories, records, and the like, which accordingly disadvantage the devalued race and privilege the valued race. Sinful people create sinful systems that hurt others. You see this in the Bible where there were, was a system of unfair weights that abused the poor. You saw this in the temple. And this is what drove Jesus to go into the temple and drive out the money changers that they were taking advantage of other people. One way to see this type of systemic injustice is in something like housing. Richard Rothstein wrote a book called The Color of Law. And in this book, he, he describes how a segregation when it came to housing in America was not a mistake. And the wealth gap that it created was not a mistake either, that there was a, a combination of governmental and banking policies that created segregation in our country and disadvantaged black Americans. The banks would not insure loans to black families regardless of how much money that they had. That the GI Bill was denied to black veterans when it was given to white veterans. That entire neighborhoods were moved or shifted around to privilege one group against another. And that these type of systems, even if they don't look the same today, have lasting impact. And so what we're called to do is see the brokenness, to see it right in front of us, to see what's not right and to step into it, not because we're personally guilty, but because we see ourselves as socially responsible. And we can discuss all the how and all the differences and all the different ways we can, and there's lots of different ways that we can uh, consider how to step into it, but let's be people who do. And it's not just an issue of race. We see that sinful people create sinful systems when it comes to something like sex and sexuality. The Me Too movement a few years ago, numerous women came out expressing how they'd been abused sexually by people in power. And it was this the result of personal choices? Absolutely. Was it the result of personal lust? Absolutely. But it also was created through the system of pornography and through human trafficking, through the sexualization and objectification of women through Hollywood, that sinful people perpetuated sinful systems which used and abused other people. See, compassion drives us to see that behind personal choices, behind personal hurt, there are maybe other factors that we can address. So the question for us is not, why do I have to, but why wouldn't we want to step into it? Why don't we see ourselves as responsible? So thirdly, what does this mean for my relationship with God? Why does Jesus say that to fail to feed the poor and give water to the thirsty and go visit someone who's sick or in prison? Why does this, what does this have to do with not inheriting the kingdom of God? Like if I don't do these things, I don't inherit the kingdom. One thing we need to realize is that these are not the keys to entry 
This isn't a checklist that if you do these things, you get in. Verse 34 says that you inherit the kingdom of God. You don't work for an inheritance, you receive an inheritance. Mercy and justice are not the gospel. They are not the gospel. They're the implication of the gospel. They're the gospel lived out because the people have been changed. They do not save you. That's the opposite of the gospel to say that works save you. We are saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ alone. But a life committed to compassionate love for neighbor is evidence that you get the gospel. And we see this when we see Jesus as king. We show this when we see Jesus as king. Verse 31, it says, the son of man comes in glory as king. Verse 32 and 33, we see that because he's king, he has the right to judge us. He has the right to call good, good, and evil, evil. He has the right to say that this is what gets you into the kingdom and this is what doesn't get you into the kingdom. And so it's because he's king, we submit to him. And this means doing what he says and loving who he loves. So a failure to love the poor and the vulnerable and the oppressed is ultimately a failure to love God. And when we use that we're saved by grace alone as an excuse to not love others, we just cheapen the gospel. Jesus cared about making right what was wrong. In Luke 4, he quotes Isaiah saying that he came to give good news to the poor and and give liberty to captives and the blind recover sight and that he would undo uh, oppression. He had compassion that led him to feed the 5,000. But also it, it shows we get the gospel when we see what Jesus did for us. Jesus so identifies with the vulnerable that he becomes vulnerable. Notice here that he says, I was hungry, I was thirsty, I was naked, I was a stranger, I was in sick, I was in prison. He, he, you have to see what he did here, that Jesus, this is him becoming fully human. He knew hunger. On the, on the cross, he said, I thirst. He was practically homeless. He was a stranger and an immigrant. He was wrongfully accused. And so he calls those who he identifies with as brothers. And he says, if you love and serve them, you've loved and served me. Or as one thinker says, Jesus didn't come just to suffer for us. Jesus came to suffer with us. And this is love because guilt cannot motivate you to love others. Only love can. Jesus loved you like this. And if you get this, you will love the vulnerable and the oppressed. You'll restore what's not right. And if you're feeling guilt and and condemnation right now, listen to me, look to Jesus. Look to the finished work of Christ on your behalf because only when you see Jesus will you be able to see others with the eyes that you need to love them well. Now, the practical part gets hard because like, how do we do this? You know, what am I actually responsible for? I, I don't think it's a coincidence that this follows the parable of the talents. Paraphrasing it, um, you know, it, a master gave five people talents or really some responsibility. And, and the person with five did really well, so he gave him five more. The person with two did well, he gave him two more. The last one had one and he buried it because he feared the master and he called him wicked. You're responsible for what's in front of you, the opportunities that you do see. And in verses 41 through 46 of chapter 25, what Jesus is talking about is turning the blind eye that you see the opportunity to love others and consistently in your life, you fail to do so. 
Let's start here. Who's vulnerable around you? Who are the vulnerable in our city? Who are the oppressed? What can you do today to be faithful, to live out this ethic of love that Jesus demonstrates? Lastly, as we close, what is City on a Hill's vision for mercy and justice? We want to live compassionate lives where we're generous people with our money and our time. We want to be hospitable in how we invite the stranger in, opening our lives, dignifying others. And and so we have to ask ourselves, who are the vulnerable around us? And we're going to be doing some work over the next six months to really narrow that in on how we do that. But there's a few areas I think we can really press into as a people. One of these is foster care and adoption. It's one of the most tangible ways that we can care for the vulnerable vulnerable kids. In the foster care system in Massachusetts right now, there are 8,414 out-of-home placements, meaning people or children are taken out of their home and put in foster care. And the ultimate goal of foster care is to restore families. What is more beautiful than working to help restore families? Same with adoption. One of the ways we fight abortion as the church is adoption. We fight abortion by making life look like like a possibility, by committing to love and care for children who either are unwanted or who were unintended, saying that that life matters. We step in. We want this to be a whole church commitment. So for some of you, you are adopting or you are fostering or you feel called to, we are here for you. We want to support you. And everyone can play a part in this. You don't have to adopt or foster, but you can be support. You can respite. You can um, do respite. You can bring meals. You can write notes of encouragement. Long-term, we want to create some sustainable systems where we wrap around families who are doing adoption and foster care. Secondly, investing in our neighborhood. We can get involved personally. There's some great organizations in Jamaica Plain and Roslindale and Roxbury, like the JPNDC, Urban Edge. There's some, you don't have to agree with everything but we can step in, step into your local neighborhood association. We do so by through our partners. We engage with English High School and the YMCA, not just by engagement, but also by, by helping address educational disparity, by providing scholarships. That's something we're doing as a church. Thirdly, we step in the gaps. Where are people not flourishing? This is why ministries like Boston Center for Biblical Counseling and and the Boston Center for uh, Pregnancy Choices are so vital because they're gospel-centered ministries helping address issues of life and justice. We support those. Long-term, we want to fund and start and support gospel-centered mercy and justice ministries to step in to address issues that we see in our city where there's a gap. We're really excited because Send, uh, the Send Network, which we're a part of, is starting a Send Relief Center here in Boston to address things like um, co- to come alongside and help strengthen communities, do refugee care, protect families and children, fight human trafficking, and, and get into crisis work. But lastly, it's through making disciples. St- start with loving each other. The, ch- the Bible says that the world will know us by our love for each other that we are equipping disciples who don't just think with their head and and love God with their hearts, but live out the gospel with their hands, who apply the gospel to all of life. The two questions we've been asking throughout this entire series are these, what do I need to do personally? And what can I do to help our church move forward? Maybe this, this morning for you, you need to see that Jesus came for you. He became vulnerable for you, that he suffered for you 
and with you. And if that's you and you're ready to take that step to trust him, let us know. Fill out a card, drop it in the comments, send us a message, we'll follow up with you. Maybe you need to take that next step. Maybe you want to learn more about foster care or adoption or getting involved with one of our neighborhood initiatives. Or maybe long-term, God's been putting a burden on your heart to start some sort of mercy and justice ministry right here in Boston. Let's talk about it and see how we can be people who apply the good news of Jesus to our neighbors for their good. Let's pray. Let's pray.